Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Gabriel Virago's latest Jack Rogan thriller is a medical adventure that deals with the dark matter of the human genome and a visionary scientist with the power to change the future of medicine. Sounds like sci-fi, you think? Well, no, it's not. It's won the approval of top cancer researchers. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and today Gabriel tells us about the virtual reality game that's helping make the dark science in his book real to ordinary people, as well as why he thanks Dan Brown for his writing career. But before we talk to Gabriel, just a reminder that the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find a full transcript of our discussion, plus links to Gabriel's books and websites, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Gabriel. Hello there, Gabriel, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, and thank you very much for asking me, Jenny. It's lovely to think of you sitting in the Blue Mountains in Sydney right now. Is the weather good? Uh, the weather is uh, excellent. Uh, we had a bit of fog, and uh, that is always a wonderful way to uh, start the day from my point of view because, uh, as I might have mentioned before, I'm sitting here in my attic where I do most of my writing because it is a setting right on the edge of the Blue Mountains World Heritage National Park, which is a splendid location and a good environment for creativity. Fantastic. Beginning at the beginning, was there a once upon a time moment when you realised that if you didn't write fiction, then your life would be the poorer for it? And if so, what was the catalyst? Uh, Needless to say, this is a very interesting question. And looking back uh, at uh, my life, it's a, a difficult one to answer because I don't believe it has been one particular moment. I think it's been more of a journey than a moment. I uh, have had a very long legal career, and uh, needless to say, a legal career is very much involved with language. I've been a barrister for many years uh, running court cases, and during that time in particular, I have met some very interesting people with very interesting stories that uh, were inspiration later on to uh, consider taking up writing. However, my interest in writing and books goes back much further than that. I have a literature degree and I have been very, very interested in writing and literature right from the beginning basically as a boy growing up in Austria. So it goes back a long time. I see. Great. Now, you've published three of these historical mysteries featuring your hero, Jack Rogan. Did you start with Jack or did you have a trial run on something else? 
No, um, I, um, I started with Jack. My first book, The Empress Holds the Key, uh, was a very ambitious project and was ignited, uh, I guess, by my interest in uh, Egyptology and Egyptian history and also uh, my interest in the church and uh, the scriptures and how all of those mesh together in the distant past. And that book took me more than 10 years to write. And during that period, I was still practicing law full time. So it's been a gradual process. But I did start with Jack Rogan as the main character. And it went from there. Now, your most recent book, The Hidden Genes of Professor K, is a medical thriller that introduces us to a visionary scientist with the power to change the future of medicine. Yes. Uh, one of your colleagues at the Garvan Institutes also described it as a journey into the heart of dark, the dark matter of the human genome. Yes. And I'm very interested in that connection with the Institute. It's a, career, a cancer research facility in Sydney, and several very prominent scientists have actually agreed to contribute to the foreword for that book. So obviously they hold it in high esteem. Yes, I'm pleased to say they do. And uh, I think it is appropriate that I, I tell you a little bit about how that particular book came about. A writer should only write about things that he knows about and is interested in. This seems an obvious thing to say, but it is very, very important. And I find uh, great pleasure in the joy of learning and uh, medical research has been an area of great interest of mine for many, many years. Now, the Garvin Institute of Medical Research here in Sydney is really a world-renowned institute with over 500 scientists working there on cutting-edge medical research. I have been privileged enough to be associated with that institute for many years now, I've been a director at the Institute for over 10 years, which has given me unprecedented access, I guess, to medical research and the scientists. And having seen what they do and what it means really for the future of mankind, as it were, I became very interested in the research and that really sparked the interest in introducing a topic a science-oriented topic, into one of my mysteries, the Jack Rogan mysteries, and that was the uh, origin of the hidden genes of Professor K. Yes, now um, that book has won an award as an outstanding thriller for 2017. That must have pleased you, but also I see on your website, if people are interested, that you can do a tour of the Garvin Institute, an interactive thing that's actually quite fascinating to for readers to complete if they're interested in going down that track. Uh, that is true. Uh, one of my main involvements with the Garden Institute is of a philanthropic kind. I'm very much involved in philanthropy and fundraising for medical research. And that has um, provided an opportunity to link my book which has a medical research topic to create awareness in medical research and how it works and philanthropic causes that make it all possible. And one of the main aims of the book was 
to <clears throat> find a way to translate complex medical and research subjects so that readers would be able to enjoy them and understand them without having to delve into scientific jargon. And that was also what interested the scientists who helped me create the book and the storyline in that it provides a unique opportunity to reach out to the public at large and create awareness in what they stand for and what they do. And that is, I think, what has made this book so successful, especially in the United States, where medical thrillers are quite popular. And the book has, as you correctly mentioned, recently received that particular acknowledgement. It was named Outstanding Thriller of the Year of 2017, which has given the book unprecedented exposure, not only in the United States, but worldwide, on social media especially, and created great interest in what the Garvin Institute does. I have also incorporated in the electronic version of the book a pledge card which allows people to find out more about medical research and make donations. And the tour, the virtual tour you have just mentioned, has only been released a short while ago before Christmas. And if you can perhaps direct um, our readers to that site, they would find it, I believe, a most fascinating journey that will take them right into the heart of medical research. It is a tour of the garden through the eyes of Professor Kay, which will open many doors and create a lot of interest. We'll certainly put a link to that uh, site in the transcript show notes, no, no doubt about it. Thank you. Perhaps moving on to your delightful memoir, The Letters from the, Letters from the Attic, yes. which I, I also mention is free for download on your site, and it's a great read. But you, in that, you jokingly blame Dan Brown for having a role in impeding the acceptance of your first book by a traditional publisher. Can you tell us that story? Uh, that, that is a, a funny story now, looking back. At the time, it wasn't that funny at all because um, <laughs> I had just reached the conclusion of writing The Empress Holds the Key, which I mentioned before, has taken over 10 years and was a very ambitious project. And as um, any budding author starting out, as I was at the time, um, I put out my feelers to traditional publishers and uh, hoped for some encouragement and an acceptance to have the book published in the traditional way. And I must say, to my great surprise, one of the first publishing houses I approached expressed immediately, as it were, interest in the book and uh, commenced negotiations with me. An editor was appointed who looked at the book and the whole process dragged on for almost a year until I finally lost patience and I said, well, something has to happen here. We either go ahead or we part company. And that's when they said, well, look, your book has flavors and nuances of Dan Brown, who has been so immensely successful, and we feel that a first-time author just starting out would not be in a position to compete with that type of genre and fame, and therefore, regrettably, we must let you go. Now, as you can understand, that has created great disappointment 
but at the same time, it has opened the main door for my future journey, which uh, led to my setting up my own publishing company, which then took care of my publishing needs and has done so ever since. Yes, and in Going It Alone, your guide for other authors, you you make it clear that you do now see that as being very good fortune. Your publishing company's got an interesting name and quite an interesting history in itself, the Bear and King Company. Can you tell us how you got to that name? Well, again, um, as a storyteller, needless to say, I love stories, and that particular name has its origin in my family crest. My uh, family uh, originates from Hungary, and I, I have a German mother and a Hungarian father, and we have a family crest that dates back to the 16th century. And on that crest is uh, a particular scene depicted whereby a great ancestor who was involved in a hunt saved the king's life by killing a bear who attacked the king when he was um, defenseless, uh, drinking water from a well. The um, ancestor, the, uh, the peasant farmer, noticed the commotion. He ran towards it, picked up the king's sword, and killed the bear. And uh, that's uh, basically how the name Bear and King originated. And uh, the scene I just mentioned is embedded in the family crest, which um, I still have and which features on the spine of all my books. Lovely, fantastic. You take pride in blending fact and fiction. I I really enjoyed the Anna Popov book, the second one in the series. Yes. I suspect that one might have been sparked by the disappearance of some English hitchhikers in the outback a few years ago. I vaguely recall that there was somebody who disappeared, but I suspect that each book has been based on historical events that spark your imagination. Is that a fair assumption? That is a correct assumption. Again, uh, I am inspired uh, by real events, either current or historic, and I find my inspiration in those events. And I then build on those events, and I ask myself, what if it happened this way or that way? And then I blend imagination, fact, and fiction into what I hope is a seamless storyline where the reader is never quite sure where fact comes to an end and fiction cuts in. In other words, blending imagination with the real thing. And that is why I use the tagline thrillers for the thinking reader as a valid and accurate description of my books and what I hope to achieve in my writing. Yes, yeah, yeah. You mentioned growing up in Austria. I think you went to Australia as a teenager. Correct. Was it difficult to integrate into Australian society? And and do you think that the experience of perhaps being an outsider in your teens has helped to influence your writing? Again, a very interesting and good question. Um, The answer of um, whether or not I felt... uh, uh, stranger, as it were, in this country, the answer to that is absolutely not. 
I have enjoyed a tremendous and very warm welcome when I arrived in Australia. And uh, the, the curious thing about it was in, that I went to a Jesuit uh, school in Austria where everything was taught except English. We were taught ancient Greek, Latin, French, German, of course, but not English. So when I arrived in Australia as a 16-year-old, unfortunately, I barely spoke any English, which, of course, is very ironic when I look back at my life and my career, whereby I studied law, became a barrister, argued cases in court, and, of course, language is uh, the hub of the wheel, as it were, and then, of course, now uh, as a writer uh, in English, of course, uh, language features prominently in uh, what I do and uh, how I conduct myself. And being multilingual, I speak several languages fluently, has, of course, helped. But coming back to your question, whether or not um, coming to a new country uh, and being an outsider uh, has in any way influenced me, first of all, I did not feel as an outsider at all. I felt instantly at home in Australia and uh, have had, uh, I think, a, a marvellous start to that part in my life. And uh, for that, I am always grateful for my new home. That's fantastic. I, I mean, your English is perfect. Uh, so you certainly made up lost ground very, very quickly, didn't you? <laughs> Perhaps um, having to learn the language as a teenager makes you far more aware of uh, grammar and the nuances of the language. And being multilingual also helps because being multilingual is a strange thing. For instance, there are certain subjects that uh, when I uh, consider them, I think in a certain language. For example, when I look at anything to do with mathematics, I always think in German. I can't explain this. It's just the way my brain works. So certain subjects will always trigger a certain language that I uh, use in my mind to uh, consider it. But then, of course, I translate that and I express myself on the page in English. Now, it's an unusual way to, uh, to be, but um, it has helped me to master, I think, language in general in a totally different way and gain insights into how to use language and sentence structure and uh, all these other essential components that are so important when you write in a far a different and perhaps, I hope, more skillful way. Yes, yeah. Perhaps moving away from talking specifically about the books to a slightly wider lens on your career. Yes. Before you turned to fiction, as you mentioned, you had an exciting and rewarding career as a barrister. Yes. I just wonder if you were ever tempted to try and be the Southern Hemisphere version of John Grisham and write legal thrillers. Uh, very good question. Uh, the answer is no. I, um, I didn't want to do that specifically. I really didn't want to emulate anyone. I simply went with my instincts and my interests, and those are all in history. I have a great interest in the classic writers, especially the, the, the Russian, uh, Russian literature, the Dostoevskys, the Tolstoy, the Pushkins. I am also very interested in French writers. I uh, 
have been very much influenced by Alexandre Dumas and, of course, uh, of great uh, Three Musketeers fame and uh, The Man in the Iron Mast and The Count of Monte Cristo. And those were the books that I read uh, with great interest as a boy. And these things stay with you. And then later in my teens, uh, I discovered Michener, and I found him especially fascinating because he used history as a major tool. And I, I found the joy of learning when I read his books, something that stayed with me throughout my life. And I wanted to turn to that particular way of writing when it came for me to turn to literature as uh, a new career, as it were. And uh, therefore, I didn't want to limit what I did to legal subjects and just be inspired by the legal topics, although I do use them, as you may have found, uh, quite extensively in my books, but not as the main driver, but as a, uh, as a, as a tool. Sure, and, and I think your books, you, you have called them historical mysteries, haven't yeah. you? Although they take place in contemporary world, but there's a lot of elements that hark back to previous history. That is correct. Uh, a very good example of that, of course, is the very first book, um, The Empress Holds the Key, which basically is, is a quest, a quest for the Ark of the Covenant. I've been always fascinated by the scriptures and the Ark of the Covenant has always stood out as, as an object of uh, semi-divine mystery. And it interested me as to uh, whether it ever existed, and if so, what has happened to it. And um, therefore, the history that de is dealt with in that particular book goes back thousands of years. It is set, of course, in today's time, but the historical content reaches back way beyond the Egyptian times as well. So each book has a historic content and a very different subject. As you would have seen, uh, The Hidden Genes of Professor K is a medical mystery and has taken medical research as its subject. Uh, the disappearance of Anna Popov uh, delves into the, the world of the Vikings and crime and the occult, which also is of great interest to me. So each book has very different subject matter, but has continuity with the main character and several other characters. So there is an ongoing development of the characters from book to book, whilst each book stands alone as an independent work and can be picked up by a reader who is not familiar with any of the books that have preceded it, each book can be read by itself. However, those readers who have followed me from the beginning will get a lot more out of each book because they are familiar with nuances and characters and character traits that have been dealt with in the previous books and therefore would feel more connected and, and feel that it resonates in different ways. Sure. Um, one of the questions that I like to ask, and it's a slightly um, facetious question, but if you were going to organize a magical mystery literary tour for your books, yes. where would you suggest people go? Now, from your point of view, each book has got such an interesting area that it visits that you'd be going all over the world. But perhaps you'd like to just give us a little rundown of, of the places that you've been to doing research that really have 
made a big impression on you. I mean, I was really fascinated by the Kimberleys aspect, the Aboriginal culture in the Anna Popoff book. That was memorable, but they've all got a, a very strong sense of uh, geographical um, association as well, haven't they? They do. Um, one of the things that I make very clear to my writers in on all my social media sites and uh, when I connect with them is that not only do I take research very seriously, which I hope every serious writer would do anyway, but I make a point of visiting all the places mentioned in my books. And so far, I'm pleased to say, with one exception, uh, I have been able to do that. And I feel that is an essential part as far as I'm concerned because I believe my writing is a very visual way of writing, and many of my readers have pointed this out. In other words, I transport myself to the venues and the places and the situations, of course, that I then visualise in my imagination before I put pen to paper. In order to do that accurately and authentically, I believe that I need to visit those places. And it gives me, of course, great pleasure and satisfaction to be able to do that, in that I then not only see it factually, but I experience the, the sounds, the smells, the languages, the climate, the whole environment, and that then has an influence on me when I actually sit and write the scenes and the storyline. And therefore, visiting those places is fundamentally important to me, and I keep doing that. I travel for at least two months every year and uh, do the research for my books. Uh, and I can give you a specific example. I'm currently working on a sequel, and that is meant in a loose sense because, once again, each of my books will be a standalone work. Uh, a sequel to The Hidden Genes of Professor K is in the final stages of completion. The title will be Professor K, The Final Quest. And it is, in a sense, of course, a continuation of The Hidden Genes of Professor K. And that book is uh, set principally in Florence, in Istanbul, and in Venice. Now, I know those places very well, and I have again recently visited them and visited all the uh, different artifacts and especially some of the iconic buildings like the Hagia Sophia, the Topkapi Palace, the Blue Mosque, the assistants in um, Istanbul to create a feeling of authenticity for all the scenes that are being dealt with in the books. So, yes, there are many geographical settings in my work, and uh, it would be very difficult to pick one in particular where I would take that mystery tour that you have just alluded to. But um, I could suggest a venue if you are interested. Yes, and also I'm interested in what the one that you couldn't get into. But yes, let's. <laughs> uh, the one I couldn't get to was in Ethiopia. Oh. I couldn't get to a number of settings in Ethiopia, which features quite prominently in my first book, simply because uh, it was too dangerous to travel it was Rebel Hill and those remote sites like Lalibela and those rock churches. Unfortunately, I was unable to visit at the time. Sure. but So what would your special one be? 
if I were to take my group of special readers who obviously are familiar with my books to a certain place and we would um, perhaps have a gathering or have a wonderful meal to reflect on the books and uh, enjoy the atmosphere, I would take them to Rome. It sounds like a great idea. <laughs> Perhaps you ought to suggest to your readers that you're going to host a tour next year and see what they say. Oh, that would be a scary prospect. <laughs> I think, I, think I, it, I could be overwhelmed with suggestions and find myself unable to do any writing. <laughs> That's right. But it was a wonderful idea and a great question to ask, and I'm very pleased you did. Gabriel, if there is one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that's been the secret to your success, what would it be? Follow my instincts, I think, is the way to, um, to respond to that very important question. I get great, great joy out of writing. And more importantly, I find the joy of learning something that inspires me. As you obviously know, writing is a very solitary mm-hmm. uh, endeavor. Uh, it, it is a very lonely and solitary way of doing it. So you have to be very content with your own company. And it's a very cerebral thing to do because every single word on that page originates in my imagination, every single scene, every single word, every dialogue, every character is a creation of my imagination. So it is something that has to happen within yourself. And if you cannot find that to be an inspiration by itself, you are bound to fail. For me, however, it has been a great joy to be able to do that. And I find it not only interesting, but very satisfying to be able to do that. So that is the single most important thing, I Mm. think, that uh, has resulted in in the books as we see them Mm -hmm. today. Look, we're coming to the end of our time. So turning to Gabriel as a reader, as you know, this series is called The Joys of Binge Reading. And we do focus on authors who are writing series. Have you been a binge reader yourself in the past? You mentioned a few of your favourite authors earlier. Is there anyone else you'd like to mention? Well, I um, did mention to you before that it's been a gradual process. I I have great interest in the classics. I've been inspired by the classics. I I am a very, very keen reader whenever I find the time. I mean, there isn't that much time today. I had more time before, which is quite ironic. But um, today, uh, time is limited. I um, I have my favourites, obviously. Uh, I uh, had mentioned already um, several of them, but I would say to you that Wilbur Smith is definitely one of my favourites, and uh, I love his seventh scroll and the river god. And um, I find uh, Frederick Forsyth also extremely interesting. David Gibbons, uh, James Rollins, The Bone Labyrinth, and there will be too many to mention, but uh, I do, I would like to mention uh, Christopher Hepsworth, who um, is um, on a similar journey to mine, and uh, he and I share the same publicist, as you know, from uh, your previous podcast. 
And uh, I enjoy very much the way he writes. And the, the Sleepwalker Legacy is basically my favorite of his books. That's great. That's that's great. Yes, he did mention to me that you are um, online friends and that you share a publicist. So that's wonderful. Look, circling round at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, would you change anything? Or are you very happy with the way that it's all fallen together? Well, Jenny, I believe trying to change your life is a folly anyway. Yeah. And we are the sum total of all the experiences that uh, we have uh, shared during our life so far. So the answer is no, I, I wouldn't want to change anything. I am absolutely grateful to all the things that have happened to me. And there have been so many various aspects to my life, all of which have had a bearing, of course, on my writing today because we are what we are and we are the sum total of our experiences, of our memories and all the things we have done and the people we have met. And that's what makes us who we are. So to try and hive something off, I think, is, is first of all, undesirable, not possible, and quite frankly, I do not speculate on that. Yeah. Therefore, the, the quick answer is, no, Jenny, I would not want to change anything, and I must say I look very much forward to the future and hopefully to the possibility of writing many more books to come. Great. Well, that leads us on very nicely to the final question that I always like to ask. What uh, is the future going to hold for Gabriel, the writer? You've got some new projects under development. Well, to answer that question, I have to tell you that one thing that many writers complain about, I have never experienced, and that is writer's block. If anything, I, I suffer from too much material that is assaulting me all the time, and uh, I have at least three or four books planned in my mind going forward. And uh, therefore, I will continue to do exactly what I'm doing now because I'm having such a great time doing it. I uh, will hopefully enjoy a long journey in a, of, of creativity going forward. So there are many more books planned involving my lovable rascal and um, friend Jack Rogan, and I will continue, hopefully, to do exactly what I'm doing going forward. Oh, that's fabulous. Now, where can readers find you online? You do have a very strong online presence. Where is the best place for readers to look you up? Well, first and foremost, uh, there is my website. But even if they don't remember that or they can't find it uh, straight away, all they have to do is Google up my name, Gabriel Farrago, and they will be finding many, many different topics, sites, and possibilities to connect with me. The hub of the wheel, of course, is my website. That will direct them to various other things, to all my books and where they are available. I am active on all the major social media sites, obviously Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest. They can find me on all of those. But if all else fails, just Google up my name and you will be directed to all the major sites and you will have no problem finding me and all the things that I do and my blogs and whatever else is happening at the moment. Wonderful. And perhaps if there's, if there's multiple sites, I am aware of your 
personal author website, but you might like to email me any sites that you really would like to see included. I know we'll do that Garvan Institute one as well, but we will make sure we've got a good lineup of all of the sites where you um, your work is found. I'm very grateful for your suggestion, Jenny, and very grateful that you are prepared to do that. I will be more than happy to perhaps suggest uh, two or three sites that could be a, a sort of a standard starting point, and the Garvan site definitely will be one of them. And maybe we can suggest to the reader, because it is at the moment so unique and so uh, so current, to take the uh, virtual tour of the Institute, the Professor K tour of the Garvan, which I think you have been able to, to experience, and then they can apply for the certificate of completion, which then gives them a number of little surprises. They will get a free copy of the book and various other giveaways and little surprises. And it could be an excellent introduction to what I do and how I do it. Yes, I've got my completion certificate and it was a great deal of fun getting there. Okay, Gabriel. Well, look, thank you very much indeed for your time. We're, we're finishing up now, but all the very best with the future. Thank you for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure, Jenny, and thank you so much once again for the opportunity. Greatly enjoyed. Okay, bye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.